all developed economies have grown from three things credit infrastructure and investment there was not enough credit um, uh, for people so you had about 20 commercial banks and about a thousand microfinance banks and the way they were only catering to three percent of the credit demand in the country wow you know about you know of those three percent about 80 percent of those loans the average ticket size is about two million dollars so if you were not looking to access credit to the tune of around two million dollars a financial institution was not the place to get a loan and that seemed quite insane to us mm-hmm. how could we solve this problem using technology welcome to the driving force podcast everyone i'm your host chase rosa a former private equity analyst turned exponential performance coach and endurance athlete this podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness, who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Chuete John Njokama. Now the third Northeast 10 Conference Tennis alum I've had on the podcast, Chuete is the co-founder and CEO of Fint, a technology platform dedicated to powering impact investing in Nigeria. More specifically, Fint is a loan marketplace that matches lenders looking for competitive returns with credit-worthy borrowers looking for the most attractive interest rates possible. Chuete grew up in Nigeria, attended boarding school at the age of 10, that's right, 10 years old, and went to school at Adelphi University in New York City. It was while at Adelphi, through discussing with friends around solving core issues in the world, that the idea of building a fintech platform came about. And after graduating, Chuete turned down two great finance offers in New York to pursue the fintech platform full-time. In this interview, we discuss the pandemic's impact on Nigeria and his business, growing up in Nigeria and moving to the U.S., his company Fint, and of course, the extravagance of Nigerian weddings. And so, without further ado, my interview with Chuete. How is the whole coronavirus situation in Nigeria right now? Has it penetrated the country? Uh, and are you guys in like a severe lockdown type situation or is it kind of more brewing, if that's the right word to use? Yes, yeah. yeah, so it's a really good question. Um, the thing is, I think we can actually, we will not be able to tell how bad of a situation we're in um, for a few reasons. One is we have we don't have enough test equipment, and not a lot of people are getting tested. So if people do actually have the virus, um, there's really no way to find out. That's one. Two, the government has been extremely slow, um, um, or rather, people have been extremely slow about realizing what the impact of the virus can be on 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 each on ourselves and um, how it can affect other people. I think the third thing as well is uh, we have about 36 states in the country and only three states are on lockdown. So the 33 other states are moving, uh, people are moving around um, and that can sort of 
speed up the the rate at which um, the virus mm-hmm. occurs. Um, in terms of sort of business, I think it's it uh, we're yet to see the full effects of of the virus towards business. Um, but I think most people are most people are hopeful. But I don't think we 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 as a whole understand. Um, um, the sort of full realities or, or, or the impact the virus can have. And I think the inability to understand that is guiding or misguiding our actions. Right. Yeah, that, uh, that makes sense. Um, so I guess as it stands now, have you had to make adjustments to your own, to your own business as a, as it relates to kind of the current situation or has it yet to kind of affect kind of the normal daily operations of, of your company? Yeah. Yeah. So for us, I think, uh, it, it can affect businesses in two ways. One is, um, movement. So, uh, people having to go to the office or people having to take meetings. The second is the actual financial impact of the virus on our, on our, on our on our business so on the first part um for us we started actually working remote at the start of january um and i'll tell you why so oh, wow. in yeah so in lagos um the the state government put a ban on tricycles uh are these things called tuk-tuks as well as um motorcycles that is a huge means of transportation for uh, for people within the city, and um, that, as a result, increased traffic times from moving from one location to the other. And so we taken decision at that point, at that point that you know if it took people on average about an hour, an hour and a half to get to work, and their their work their home to to office um, traffic time jumped to three hours. Um, it wasn't really going to be productive if they came to the office after three hours of getting into the office and go back home and it'll take another three hours. It didn't really make sense uh, yeah. for us to still have people coming to the office. So we already imp- implemented a remote policy. And so that has been good. I don't think it's disturbed productivity. Um, we've already, we already have had this, been using the tools that we would use um, um, were we fully remote. So people just come to the office on Fridays. Um, however, as the, as the lockdown was implemented, we have to go full, full remote. So um, we use Airtable, we use Slack, we use um, Zoom, and so we're, we're doing fine in, uh, on that front in terms of mobility. Um, meetings are still being had, um, and so um, there, are no, there are no problems um, as a result of that. The second part is what the financial impact to the business would be. I'm sorry, before you, um, before you get into that, I just, um, yeah. what, was the, what was the rationale behind uh, this, the government uh, banning transportation for the tricycles and the motorcycles uh, in January? Wow, that's, um, it's a, 
what was the government's rationale? Um, I, I think the idea was that, okay, so I, I think it's, it's two things. One was a new industry, a new sort of technology industry was coming up where a lot of businesses had raised capital from the West um, to run um, motorcycle transportation businesses. And um, the government didn't really have a way to regulate that market. And so they weren't really earning income from those people. The second was that um, the tricycles and motorcycles at large um, tend to be sort of, uh, I don't really call them bad, but they're not great drivers. And that has always been a complaint. Um, okay. But I think the honest answer is I, 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 I don't know what the rationale was because, if, uh, <laughs> you know, 80% of the, 80% of the, at least 80% of the population needs tricycles and, uh, and uh, uh, motorcycles to move around. Um, cars form a really limited amount of people who use that form of transportation. So in essence, you, you eradicate the ability for, for um, the lower and middle class and lower middle income people to be able to move themselves um, um, cheaper and more effectively. Um, so I don't know. I think it, the, the, it's, we're yet to find out. I mean, thankfully, we're, we're, we're on lockdown now, so people don't really have to move around as much. But it really affected a lot of people. The price of, of transportation went up at least uh, 50 to 100% in some cases. Um, and um, salaries aren't going up. Um, income income levels aren't rising for people. So I, I, I'm not too sure I know the rationale or I understand the rationale. So it would be very difficult for me to answer that question. I, I don't think I understand enough. Yeah, that's, that's, that's super interesting. Um, it's, sorry to interrupt. I think you were about to go into the financial yeah, impact so on, on the... the... Yeah, so, so, so for us, I think it's a really good opportunity specifically because of what we do. You know, we our goal is to um, increase access to credit in Nigeria and 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 Africa as a whole by driving more investments towards um, credit in different sectors. And so, uh, when there is a pandemic, um, there is a market uncertainty, and more people are looking to access credit. And uh, you also have, on the other end. Um, businesses who are looking for investment opportunity and credit becomes a really good uh, asset class to invest in at, that, at this time. So we, we, we see some really good upside in the medium and long term, medium to long term. Um, but because the market is still uncertain right now, um, our goal is to ensure that we can, we, we can create the right structures in place so that we can benefit from from the medium to long term. So I, I, I think it's a really good, good opportunity for us. And so um, our goal is to be aggressive about taking taking um, those opportunities. That's interesting. I can understand the, um, I guess, why people during this time would want access to, to loans and to credit. But from, is there still a lot of activity going on around people wanting to to lend to to businesses during this uh, pandemic situation? Yeah, so um, not, the thing is, 
we have we have to look at it from the point of view of who the who possible investors in this space would be. So definitely, uh, because we're a peer-to-peer lending platform, individuals not so much because their particular concern is how they can how how they can ensure that they have money for themselves and their families um, through this period. Um, asset managers um, would be a target right now because. Got it. You know, at the start of the year, when investors, in, clients invest with them, they promise clients certain yields. And so as the year goes on, they have to pick up assets uh, um, that would allow them drive the yields that they have promised as a return to the investors. So those sorts of people are looking for, for investment opportunities. Um, and so I think depending on who the type of investor is, yes, you, you, you'll see some investors who are interested. Asset managers for us are, are, are really having quite a decent number of conversations with a few, and yes, there's interest on that side. Right. Got it. Interesting. I definitely want to get back to and dig a little deeper into to your business later on, but um, uh, I do kind of want to get into your background and and how that led to you founding uh, your company. So where in Nigeria, where in Nigeria did you grow up? Okay, so I I grew up in Lagos, Nigeria. In a in a Lagos used to be the formal capital of Nigeria. Uh, so Nigeria has three three dominant ethnic groups. You have the Hausas, the Yorubas, and the Igbos. Um, I'm from, and the Igbos are located mostly in the southeastern part of the country, and partly also in the south, in the south south of the country. So I'm from a state called Delta, uh, which is uh, uh, sort of rich oil or uh, an oil-rich state. Uh, okay. Not not as biggest Texas, but, but sort of the same demography. Uh, so I am one of four children. Um, I've got two older brothers and a sister. And the my as number four, my third sibling is nine years older than I am. So wow. my parents had me quite late. Uh, um, and yes, so I grew up in Lagos for my primary and secondary school education and have lived here for most of my life. Got it. Uh, and did you play a lot of sports growing up? Yes, so so I did actually. You know, my father's a big believer in sports. Uh, till today, he's in his 70s. He plays golf uh, three times a week. Um and, you know, when I was growing up in a place called Ikoi Lagos, uh, we were members of a country called, club called Ikoi Club in 1938. And uh, that's, that's sort of the year it was founded. Mm-hmm. And it was about five to ten minutes away from my house. Uh, you know, when I was really young, my parents used to be really busy at the time. So anytime I was done with school, um, I'd always get dropped up at a country club and... I'd play, I'd swim, I'd play golf, I'd play tennis, I'd do taekwondo, I'd go play squash. So I played 
when I was not when I was not um, in school or in class, um, I was somewhere playing some kind of sport, so I could get tired, go back home, and sleep. So yes, I, I grew up playing a lot of sports. <laughs> right, that's awesome. Is is football, or I guess what we would call soccer in America, the most popular sport in Nigeria? Yes, it is. Um, um, everyone needs to learn how to play football. Um, it's a it's 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 a cultural thing in 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 Nigeria. Um, I think that's the first sport every every boy and girl gets taught um, the first time. So yes, football mm-hmm. is, is 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 the is is the most popular sport. It's, it's almost like a requirement. It sounds like exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, I wasn't I wasn't very good at it, so I had to find <laughs> another sport to play. <laughs> right. And that sport ended up being tennis, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so I, I started playing tennis, I believe, when I was... I'm actually not sure now. But I, I, I know that I have been playing tennis for as young for as, for, for as, for as, young as I can remember. Um, and I'd play, I'd play tennis, then I'd go play golf, I'd play, then I'd go swim. But tennis really sparked my interest. Um, when I was young, and so yes, I just stuck with it. And what what was it about it that uh, sparked your interest? Do you think? I think I really think it's the fact that you know you, you alone you alone um, are able to sort of determine your fate. Um, I think that was really interesting to me. Um, you know, so when I used to play football, um, even though I wasn't any good. Um, when I play in primary school and, you know, we'd lose or we'd win, um, anytime that happened, if I didn't contribute my quota, I always felt as though I let um, other people down. And so tennis was fascinating to me because I could sort of decide my fate on the, on the court, you know, um, this idea Mm -hmm. that you could be independent um, um, you could be independent and you could decide your fate was quite interesting. I also think that, you know, it didn't require a lot of people to play as well. So that was a good thing. If you had one or two people, you were pretty, pretty much get a good game. And I also enjoyed the sort of mental aspects, you know, yeah. you play a three setter and you're doing well, the first set, um, you know, how do you ensure that you keep going on a roll to win the second set? Um, or if you're not doing well, how do you psych yourself up uh, to, you know, to get back? So that, that idea of independence on the court and working your mind as well as your body was quite, quite, quite interesting to me. And still yeah. is. Yeah, I would, uh, I would really, I would agree with that for sure. Are there a lot of good players to train with, uh, where you live? Yes. Yeah, so there are, there are, but. I, I don't know that I've had the opportunity to train with them, you know. So when I was, when I started playing, because I played at a country club, um, you know, it, it was it was a members only, only, only club. So you could only play with the people who who were members. Um, unfortunately, not all of them were good, right? So uh-huh. so so you would you'd have to sort of make do and then once in a while i'd go to the national stadium um which is about maybe half an hour 45 minutes away from 
where I used to live. And they were really good players. You know, the interesting thing about, about tennis in Nigeria is a lot of the really good players um, actually were self-taught. You know, they worked as mm. ball boys in a club. Um, someone gave them a racket and they'd go to the war and they formed their own strokes. And those players today are at least the highest ranking players in Nigeria. So it's, it, it's actually really interesting, a lot of how those people's stories um, sort of transcended. Um, I got training, but I ended up not being as good as they were. But um, so, 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 yeah, they, 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 there, are, there, are, there are good players, but they spread one in different parts of the country and two um, in different places um, in, in, in the states that they are. Um, but today I play, I have a, a, a friend and colleague who, who played, who played tennis for college as well. And he's the one I continuously train with about three days a week. Got it. It is interesting. Um, and fast forwarding now to your decision process and kind of where you wanted to go to, to college. If you had to guess how many Nigerians choose to go to university within Nigeria versus out of the country? You know, that, that's a good question. Um, I'm sure my figures are going to be wrong, but I, I, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you a bit of an idea. Um, if I look at the sort of cluster of schools that I went to, so I went to, I went to boarding school um, for secondary school. So just like, I guess, middle school and high school. Um, so at age 10, I went to boarding school. If I look at the people who went to the schools I went to, I would probably say 90%. 90% of those people end up going to school abroad. And they really end okay. up going to two countries, uh, the US and the UK. Um, but if I try and extrapolate outside of those cluster of schools, it'd probably be less than 5%, less than 5 to 10% maybe. Got it. Okay. And were you adamant on going to university in the U.S.? Actually, no, I wasn't. You know, so when I finished um, secondary school, high school, um, I think at I, I just turned or I was turning 15. Um, my the plan was that I was going to go to boarding school in England. And I remember uh, I was having a conversation with my older brother uh, because I had applied to some boarding schools in England to go do um, something that's called the A-levels. It's basically a two-year program before you go to university. Um, a requirement um, if you're going to go to university in England. Um, so. I remember having discussions with my brother and, you know, when I was in middle school, I had been talking to my parents about going to tennis academy, um, specifically mm -hmm. IMG. And so I went to IMG, I think in year 10 for about a month and I absolutely loved it. And so I had always wanted to go um, for, a full, for a full program. And you know, my parents didn't think it was a good idea at the time. 
And so fast forward to my graduation in high school, um, they now think it's a good idea now that I'm interested in going to boarding school in England. So I was extremely gutted, but it was a really <laughs> good opportunity. So I spent a, a year in IMG academies just playing tennis. Um, so that was fun. That was a really, really good Yeah. Time. And so ultimately that transition into America uh, uh, led me to applying to universities in, in, in America. Got it. Okay. And kind of walk me through the process uh, you went through and kind of figuring out which schools you wanted to apply to and maybe ultimately why you decided on Adelphi. You know, I, I actually, that's uh, why, so I think that there were a few things. Um, I wanted a school where I could play tennis. I wanted to stay in a cosmopolitan city. Okay. Um, you know, when I was thinking about going to university, um, I thought it was important to, you know, um, be able to sort of explore myself during that period of time, um, really find out what I want to do with my life. And so I wanted a place that would allow me the opportunity to do that and also allow me the opportunity to meet like really fascinating people. And so those were sort of my barometers. Um, and I remember in IMG, there were, you would have a sort of a counselor who would help you with, um, with deciding for schools. And I think he came up with a list of like six or seven schools. Um, and about two were in New York. And I decided, okay, either the two in New York will be fine with me. And that's how Adelphi came about. So it really wasn't some complicated decision. Right. I think as long as it, it fulfilled those three barometers, I was I was pretty much good to go. And I'm um, Adelphi actually ticked those three boxes. You know, I could play tennis. I was in a cosmopolitan city. Um, I would have the opportunity to meet fascinating people and I'd be able to explore myself. So um, it was a it, it was a, a good decision at the end of the day. And um, what I sort of made flimsily, but ended up turning out good. Got it. Okay. And it doesn't sound like it was very hard for you to leave Nigeria and be so far away from home. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, and I, 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 th I think it's a number of things. You know, at age 10, 11, I was already in boarding school. And so I was already used to not being home as much. Yeah, you know, and see, pretty, from a, sorry to interrupt from there, a, but in, a, yeah. in America, that's just unheard of to be in boarding school yeah. at that young of an age. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. So, so, so it, was, it, was, it was not that hard a decision. So I was already used to being independent. Um, um, you know, I spent, I would spend about two or three, uh, two or three months in the summer spending time with my family and friends outside school. But most of my time was spent uh, in school, um, in a boarding school um, in, in Nigeria. So that's, I guess, one part of it. The second part was, you know, I have three older siblings. Um, my sister went to UW, University of Wisconsin in Madison, and my two brothers went to, to, 
So one went to school in England and the other went to school in France. And so they'd done it. So I thought, you know, if they'd done it, you know, I mean, I can as well. So I, I, I don't really think it was that much of a concentration. If anything, I was really happy to go and be experiencing like a new world by myself. Right. And did you enjoy your overall experience at Adelphi? Oh, yes, I, I loved it. Um, it was close to the city, which I would go to every week. Um, the people there were great. My teammates, I still talk to. Um, we actually have a group chat. And I've been nice. keeping up with them, given, given what's going on in, in New York right now. Um, and I've met some really great teachers, teachers are, that are still sort of my friends today that I still catch up with. So I really had a good experience there. Um, you know, it was sort of a marriage of two things. One was, um, I think fundamentally, because of how, how the, the, because I studied economics there and political science, because of how school was taught or lectures were taught, um, it really gave me an opportunity to really understand and explore explore my mind. You know, I took different courses um, um, that were of interest to me. And so, yeah, I had a really, I had a really good time. Um, um, I almost think I would do it again, but, you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah, that's great. So was starting a business something you gave serious thought to while you were in school? Yes. Yeah, so, so, you know, when I was in boarding school in year 10, I and a group of friends, um, which was actually started by my, um, one of my co-founders today, had a, a sort of a group called D-Vision. And the idea was that we wanted to build like African games, games for African children, right? And so after we left, um, after we left boarding school, and all went to university. Whilst in university, we'd get on a call every month. At first, it started it was started out as fifteen people. We'd get on a call every month, and we sort of assign ourselves tasks, um, and try and solve issues, and then try and build um, the solutions to those issues we'd found. Um, so it moved very quickly from a gaming idea to solving other problems that existed in Africa. And so um, I think that was always at the back of my mind, you know, that there was something to be done in business um, around solving core issues that Africans and African businesses faced. But I never really thought that I would be going to start a business after, uh, after, uni after university. But I remember the day after my graduation, uh, my friends had come down um, from Boston and London and alongside my parents and my, my siblings. And the day after, you know, I'm sitting down um, with whom is one of my co-founders today and my, my father and my dad, you know, my dad asked me, you know, young man, what's next? You know, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. what's, what's the next plan? And at the time, I'd applied for a few sales and trading jobs in, in New York. Um, I had gotten two offers. And so I thought I was going to stay in New York. 
Um, but my dad was also aware that we'd started building a fintech solution um, at the time. And so he asked, you know, um, how about the project you and your friends were working on? Um, what happened to that? And I told him, yeah, we, we like the idea, uh, but maybe we go get some experience first and then go and go and do it after. And then he said, you know, so what if you do it now? What do you have to lose? And that question really put into motion um, or questioned a lot of our, our thinking. It's like, you know, what's the worst that happens? You fail. And if you fail, you go and get an MBA after and you can, you know, continue your life. You know, he's right. like, you don't want to spend your, your youth um, with an idea that you had and have been working on and never actually explored um, that idea. So that was like really, really um, motivating to me. Um, the fact that he'd be okay with me leaving university and going to start a business immediately. And it actually spurred my co-founder to um, move back to Nigeria as well. And so, yeah, so I didn't know that I was going to do it after university, but um, that encouragement from my, my, my dad is quite helpful in, in sort of speeding up the decision. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. And so is there a lot of entrepreneurship and companies being started in Nigeria? Uh, yes, there is, you know, um, so there is this theory of, there's something called the side hustle. Yep. Um, every Nigerian, whether in employment, um, unemployed has a side hustle. So Nigerians in their cells are already very entrepreneurial. However, in terms of like formalized businesses, I think technology is really seeing a new boom of young people starting businesses to solve some of, um, some of, uh, of the countries and uh, the continents um, I would call like infrastructure problems. And so I see there being a huge growth, a, a huge growth in that. Um, also because, you know, I guess for some people, um, the salaries that are being paid by some companies are not that attractive. And so the, the sort of loss norm for starting a business, um, the options actually seem quite attractive. And so a lot of people are going ahead to, 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 to go and, solve 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 really interesting problems interesting okay and do you and you might have, might have touched on this a little before but have a list of mentors or maybe a mentor network that you tap into for help on various aspects of entrepreneurship and running a business maybe especially kind of early on yes yeah, so um I don't think the mentorship was so formalized, but uh, I, 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 you know, once I moved back, um, actually, our, my neighbor actually, um, quite luckily, used to head, uh, at the point in time, was heading financial institutions for um, a global bank for West Africa. And mm -hmm. I was trying to build a fintech solution slash company. And so it almost made sense that I would latch on 
latch on latch on to him for all the course, advice yeah. and network access i could get and so he was sort of our first mentor he also brought in a gentleman um who at the time um yeah a, a gentleman as well who at the time could give us sort of the technology part of the business so he could give us advice and network access on the finance side and the other gentleman would be doing that on the technology side so there were the two people that first of all um, um were of huge support to us um as well within our own sort of network of friends and family um, we would get introduced to people who could either give us advice um or give us access and so so we we started off reaching through our network first and and built that over time. But I'd also give you some context. You know, when we moved back into Nigeria, um, our goal was to help provide uh, Nigerians with a solution that would allow the people in the really rural areas, which is about 80% of the population, to be able to handle, to, to be able to carry out financial transactions. Um, without the use of data um, or uh, with without use of phone connectivity or like Wi-Fi. And we thought we could do that through the power of Bluetooth. That, that, that was the solution we, we came back trying to solve. Okay. And when we had these two mentors, mentors, that, that's what they were, they were helping us push. And, you know, at this point in time, I'm back in Nigeria a few months after my graduation 2015 of May, I think I was back in September or October. And, you know, we mapped out what the plan and process was and had an idea of like a schema for how we're going to build up the solution. And luckily we got introduced to, to um, a gentleman at the time who was um, sort of the decision maker at the regulator who would give us a license to be able to run out this solution. And it was a very quick meeting, 30 minutes. And uh, the gentleman said two things. One was that, you know, you guys are too young to think you can solve such a huge problem. And two, um, we're not giving any more licenses out because we've currently given out 20. And out of those 20 licenses, only four people are operating. So in essence, in two months of moving back to Nigeria, turning down two job offers in New York, um, I was in Nigeria without no, um, no business because the regulator has told me I cannot get a license. We also didn't have the money to get a license um, and that we were too young to solve this problem. And so I remember leaving that meeting absolutely gutted. And I called my business partner because I was with one of my mentors at the time. I called my business partner and my business partner was supposed to come back to Nigeria in December of 2015. And I told him, look, I don't think you should come back. You should take your job offers in Boston because he was in Northeastern at the time. And, okay. you know, maybe we'll try and do this again. And he said to me, He's like, there's no way I'm not coming back. You know, you're already back. So why don't we use the next two or three months to try and figure out 
um, what other problems in fintech we can solve. And so we spent the next two months trying to do that. And what our business is today came out of, of the deliberations of those two months. Interesting. Okay. And so when, when was kind of the, the moment of that kind of original inspiration to want to pursue a fintech business in Nigeria? When did, when did that moment come about? I think it was at some point during university. I'm actually not sure when, but you know, I, as I mentioned before, we used to have these calls that we'd have that I basically had every month for four years of my university experience. Okay. And, you know, we started off at 15 people and around my fourth year, uh, we were down to maybe three or four people. So in essence, 12 people had faded away over the last four years, people who are still friends, but were not entirely interested in getting on calls to solve, to solve, to solve issues, you know, the more important things to do at the time. <laughs> and so what had happened was one of my friends, parents had tried sending money to a, to a family relation who lived in the rural area. And the complexity of sending that money, um, you know, they had to, to give money to someone, that person had to transport themselves to that place in order to give that person money and also transport themselves back to my friend's uh, parents to say that they had delivered the money. So it seemed like a really convoluted process to, to, to be able to hand some some money. And so that became a really interesting issue. You know, um, when we started doing some research, we found that, you know, almost no one was solving that problem. And why, you know, a lot of the economy was cash-based and there were no systems to ensure that uh, people could access money in these rural areas. And if they couldn't access money in these rural areas, they couldn't access credit and they couldn't access other financial services. So we thought that that would be a very good layer to start. And so um, I believe in our, in our fourth year, we decided to build, build a platform to solve that problem using Bluetooth. And um, upon graduation, we decided to run it. I see. Okay. And maybe for the people listening, provide a quick overview of Fint. Is that, that's where you pronounce it, right? Fint? Exactly. Fint. Fint. Um, provide a quick overview of Fint uh, for people listening would be, would be great. Okay. Fantastic. So, you know, um, first of all, the name is, a sh is, is, you know, so because we are in the business of FinTech, um, we just took out the ECH. Um, so it really doesn't mean anything more than it sounds like. And, you know, ultimately the name actually means something deeper, which is, you know, um, because Fint is in FinTech, we can, we can create a service that, um, uh, a service that, that caters to the needs of, of, of Africans and African businesses who have 
not being financially included. So what do we do? You know, let me give you some context. So in 2016, with a population in Nigeria of about 160 million people and about 20 million businesses at the time, sorry, about 25 million businesses, only 3% of those people had ever accessed a loan from a financial institution before. 3% of 160 million people and 25 million businesses. You know, yep. that for us was a, was quite an insane number. You know, um, as you know, all developed economies have grown from three things, credit, infrastructure, and investment. There was not enough credit uh, uh, for people. So you had about 20 commercial banks and about 1,000 microfinance banks. And the way they were only catering to 3% of the credit demand in the country. Wow. You know, about, you know, of those 3%, about 80% of those loans, the average ticket size is about $2 million. So if you were not looking to access credit to the tune of around $2 million, a financial institution was not the place to get a loan. And that seemed quite insane to us. Mm -hmm. How could we solve this problem using technology? Knowing that um, credit and investments were huge tools that could drive Africans um, um, into comfort and out of poverty and into growth um, from stagnation, right? And so we decided to build a peer-to-peer lending platform that will connect borrowers, whether individuals or businesses, with investors, um, corporate individuals who are looking to invest in the loans of these people for a return. And the value proposition was four ways. The first thing was for borrowers, we could increase access to credits to the 97% of people who had never accessed credit before, and also reduce the cost of credit um, uh, because the rate in which borrowers are getting charged was from 5% to 30% a month. Um, if you analyze that, that's between 60 to 360% a year, quite draconian rates. Wow. And for investors, uh, we could create new assets for them to invest in um, and for them to earn a high return, um, risk-adjusted, um, uh, in comparison to other assets that existed. You know, what happened was the deposit rates at the banks were low, but the lending rates were high and the difference being kept by the banks. Our goal was to redistribute those earnings to investors who own the capital um, so that uh, people could also grow wealth for themselves. And so that's what we do today. Interesting. So why is it that your platform helps borrowers secure lower interest rates than if they tried to get a loan uh, the traditional way? Okay, so, 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 so really good question. So the first thing is, as 
if the traditional way is to go to um, a bank, right? Um, and what happens? The bank, um, before a bank lends, they raise capital to lend. That capital that's raised is raised at a cost. And okay. so when they're lending, they're adding a premium to that cost. As a platform, um, we don't raise capital into our company. We simply serve as a channel for investors to, to push their capital into. So we're also able to reduce, we can reduce the cost of borrowing because we don't have to take a cost onto our balance sheet. That, I guess, would be the first thing. The second thing is that we are sort of democratizing access to credit as an investment to not only um, financial institutions, but to everyone. You know, before um, credit as an investment would, was only, at least in Nigeria, only presented to banks. Today, we allow individuals, corporates who are not financial institutions, financial institutions themselves, to access um, credit as an investment opportunity. Um, and so that is attractive for them. The, 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 the other thing is that the low rate of borrowing that borrowers, the low rate we were charging borrowers was also an attractive rate for investors to invest in. Um, simply because um, the other products that exist out there for investors to invest in weren't paying them that good a return. So whereas, whereas we charge um, um, rates of between 1% to 3%, investors uh, would, whereas we charge 1% to 3% to borrowers, where they would be getting 5% to 30%, um, that 1% to 3% serves as a good return to investors because they don't have investments that pay them that rate as well. I see. Okay. And are there certain areas or sectors um, that are more popular for lenders to invest in that other, than others? So that's a good question. So, you know, for us, Ultimately, uh, what, what we do is to, so how we run our peer-to-peer uh, uh, peer lending platform is to partner with businesses and with those businesses structure borrowing products around the business that they do, either for themselves, um, their customers, or stakeholders um, across their value chain. And so... You know, what we found that was the issue around credit in Nigeria was there is no bad repercussion. There is no repercussion for bad credit behavior in Nigeria, right? So, for example, in America, if, if, I, if I don't have good credit, I can't access uh, a place to rent or buy or I can't access a mortgage. Yeah. Um, um, that there's repercussion to, to having bad credit. Those mechanisms don't exist in Nigeria. And so the goal was how could we create a system that would 
allow us improve the rate at which we are able to collect um, the monies that have been invested by investors to borrowers. And so we do that by today by partnering with businesses and structuring a way so that those businesses, their customers or stakeholders um, can access loans, which would improve our collection rates, but also include access um, um, to credit. And so that's how we, we've thought around solving the problem. You know, we, similar to how, for example, FICO exists in America, there exists no system like that in Nigeria. So we are in essence trying to build the infrastructure for credit around different sectors, such that um, people will be able to access credit at the point in which they need it. Now to your, to your question, um, I think what is also quite interesting uh, for Nigerians is Nigerian investors like high returns, but are also simultaneously risk averse. You know, so that presents a, a, an interesting dichotomy. You know, mm -hmm. where someone wants high returns, but they, they are not willing, they, they have their risk appetite is quite low. And so what we do is to structure various types of ways for people to um, access opportunities. And what do I mean? So today, um, if you're an investor, you can invest in, in the loans of people where you would earn your principal and interest monthly, or those where you earn your interest monthly and your principal at the end. And so an investor's appetite is really based off of, you know, what am I investing towards? You know, what am I investing for? Um, and how much of a rate am I interested in investing in? And so depending on those two questions, uh, people decide to invest in agriculture or power or um, automobile financing or, uh, or something we call agency banking. Got it. Okay. And so you must have some, since there is no kind of, re like you said, repercussion for having bad credit mm -hmm. like there is in America, I feel like you, mm -hmm. there must be some sort of verification process that you have for for borrowers that go onto your platform to kind of create some sort of air of, I guess, trust with the people that want to lend. Mm -hmm. So what is that, right? Mm -hmm. So... You know, what we do, uh, I think it's a really good question. So I think the, the most important thing that, that we do is look at where we see a credit opportunity in a given sector and figure out the businesses we can partner with in those sectors so that we can create a mechanism that allows for people who are looking for credit in any one of those sectors to access credit. And so let me, let me sort of, let, let me try and explain that. So today, um, 
if an individual wanted a loan, uh, they would not be able to access a loan from Fint directly. They would be coming through any one of our partners who we've designed a borrowing product around. Okay. And inherent in that borrowing product, we have created mechanisms to ensure that investors can collect their money. And I think I'll give you a, a, a clear example of this. So today we have a power product, um, which basically allows people to access loans to pay their power utility bill. Okay. Um, please let me know where I'm unclear. Okay. So in Nigeria, um, there are 12 distribution companies. These are companies that provide power to individuals and businesses in certain areas. Now, these 12 distribution companies have a monopoly of power in their areas. I believe this is sort of similar to how it works in America, right? Yes. You know, and so what happens is individuals and businesses are accessing, are paying for their power through different um, channels. They might pay for their power through a phone or pay for their power through a bank. Um, and so what we do is meet them at the channels in which they are paying for power. What do we also do? We also power with the distribution companies so that if a user takes a loan, a power loan from us, we have in partnership with the distribution companies communicated um, through our technology that um, X and Y has taken a loan so that the next time in which they pay for their power, that payment of power serves as a repayment to fit. If the user does okay. not pay for their power again, they don't have electricity in their homes. And our loan amounts are less than $14. And so people will not necessarily move houses or move their businesses because they owe such a little amount for power. I don't know if you, if, if, if you get that. It's, um, I'm having a little bit of a hard time understanding it, but so, so today, right. Um, you know, when someone takes a Fint loan, they, they don't actually have to go on Fint to take a loan. Fint has partnered with several businesses such that that user can access a Fint loan on the platform of that business. Is that clear? Yes, that is okay. Okay. So we, 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 we do that, you know, that, that approach is just driven by APIs. Basically we are to what we are, what Stripe is to payments. Um, that's what we are to credit and investments. So we are driven oh, by okay. APIs. Got it. Exactly. That's a helpful, that's a helpful so, comparison. Okay. So, so, so it's an API approach first. So the user is on that platform and using Fin to access a loan for power. Now that's one. So the second thing is today, because I am accessing a loan from a channel where Fint is partnered with that company, I can get a loan for power. 
Fint is also partnered with the companies who provide the electricity to you. So if you've requested for $10 worth of a power loan, we will provide that loan to you, but we provide it to the energy company yeah. so that it reflects in your meter. Okay? Mm-hmm. So the next time you decide to pay, um, you would go and pay for your power the same way you typically pay for your power. The energy company would look at what you owe Fint, will deduct that amount, and that would serve as a repayment of the loan to Fint. Huh. That's an interesting model. Okay. Do, do you understand that now? I do, yes. And so if you don't actually pay for that power and your utility is done, you just don't have any electricity. So you are sort of mandated to pay for power, for that power, so you can continue to access electricity. And because the amounts are so small, you are not going to move your house or your business because of that amount that you owe. Right, right, okay. Interesting. So, how is the? Was that clear? It was. Yes, it was. It was much more. It was much clearer. Thank you. Okay. And so, how is the? Um, and apologies if you might have touched on this before. The ultimate terms of the for the loans carried out set through through your platform. Are you? Is it through like the relationships and the partnerships that you've? built with the different businesses financial institutions and that helps set the the term the loan term how is it ultimately set okay so so yes so on the borrowing side um uh, our partners because our partners are part of the loan process we create those terms with them um, okay. and it goes it that ranges from amounts, from the amounts that will be lent to the process of collection and to the tenor of the loan. Um, however, we as the platform always set the rates. Um, however, it's still, it, it still happens in discussion with the businesses, but we have more um, of, a, of a call on the rates that are set. With our institutions, with our sorry, with our investors, um, our investors simply then have various products that they can invest in, and they choose which fits their appetite. Um, uh, but we ultimately set the structures with the businesses um, of which those customers are coming to borrow, and uh, and the general terms around them, and then the investors choose which fit their appetite. Okay. Got it. That makes sense. Have you so have you raised any venture capital or venture debt for Fint? Yeah, so we haven't raised any venture capital. Um, however, um, when we were starting out, um, uh, because in our first project before it ever launched, um, we had someone tell us we were too young to. To, to be able to solve the problem of payments, 
um, we thought, you know, there's no way anyone would think we're not too young to solve the problem of credit, which is an even worse problem. And so it was important that we partner uh, or raise some sort of capital from people who have been in the financial industry in Nigeria for some time and have a lot of brand equity and experience in the space. Yep. So we actually raised our first, um, we raised our pre-seed capital from, um, uh, I guess, one of the largest investment banks in Nigeria called uh, Vitiva Capital. And then decided to raise um, additional pre-seed capital from a few high net worth individuals. However, the goal for us was not really the capital, but the industry experience and network access they could give us. And so that was the most important thing. Um, and so we raised from those sets of people and we've currently raised, and yes, and so we've raised from about five, sorry, six individuals and uh, an investment bank. And no, we haven't raised any VC capital yet. Is that something you foresee doing in the future? Yeah. So, so, you know, to give you some context to our journey, you know, in 2016 and 2017, two years before we started any lending on our platform, we in essence spent two years um, raising capital from an investment bank and high net worth individuals as well. We spent that time building our platform. Um, getting a license that would allow us to get regulated, partner with one of Africa's largest insurance companies called Old Mutual to insure all the loans on our platform. Okay. Test, build the actual platform out. Um, so uh, I guess these two years were spent um, building building sort of this schema for what we, we thought would be the right model to solve um, Africa's problem of credit and investment. And this was being done by three people at the time, you know? And so in 2018, we officially launched that model. Um, it was a business to consumer model that connected individuals specifically um, with investors looking to invest in the loans of these in individuals. And it was unsecured loans. At the end of 2018, we, we, we realized uh, a few things. One was that we were not scaling fast enough um, um, because investors found that particular product to be too risky, even though they okay. had the idea. The the the, the idea, and so um, it goes back to what I said. You know, um, because no repercussion for bad credit behavior exists, um, we had to switch from from using an algorithm which assessed people. Um, to actually focusing on our collection capacity. And so in 2019, we spent time trying to pivot the model to a business to business to consumer model, where we partner with businesses to structure products around those businesses for themselves, their customers and stakeholders and their value chain. And that transition solved the issue around risk and solved the issue around scale. And so, in essence, as I look back uh, from our journey 
from 2016 to date, we in essence spent four years trying to figure out how to solve this, the continent's issue around credit access and investment opportunity going into credit. And so now we, we, we have what we believe is the right schema to solve this issue. And we are considering a raising venture capital. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Um, so what's your ultimate vision for Fint? Um, for, I think I, it's a really good question. You know, I, I've seen over the 25 years I've, um, I've been in this world, I, I, I've seen how, how, um, access to the right investment opportunities and access to credit has um, impacted countries. Um, you know, luckily, since I've been young, I've got the opportunity to travel all around the world um, with my family, my parents. Um, and part of the places I've been to have been in Africa. And, I, and you know, it, it, it hurts to see that with a continent with so much opportunity, so many people yet have access to the basic necessities. Um, and if given the chance, they can afford these basic necessities. And credit is one way to, to, to allow them start to realize a, a more comfortable um, living standard. And, so when we think about what our what our vision is is to be able to create a platform that dissipates um, credit around around Africa um, to the most needy people, uh, people who need it the most, and to also start to generate wealth for the generation of people who are who are looking for new ways to to to, to create income opportunities for themselves. And so if, if and when we are in the 30 African countries providing greater access to power and providing smallholder farmers with tools for them to perform their production and commodity process better, um, allow people to access loans for cars or um, motorcycles or tricycles so they can improve their transportation, generate income, and I think um, um, all of this would be worth it. Got it. Okay, that's great. Um, I guess shifting topics here a little. Uh, I did some reading, a little bit into reading on Nigeria before the interview, and it seems like it's an often misunderstood and misrepresented country. It it has uh, a pretty it has a pretty strong and growing economy, right? Yeah. So so yes, I agree with you. I think you know. A lot of opportunity exists um, in Nigeria, but like any other part of the world, there is a growing separation with the haves and the have-nots. Um, one of the things that that increases that separation is the lack of investment in in credits around different sectors of the economy and the lack of investment in infrastructure. And so, uh, I think once Africa or Nigeria as a whole is able to, to create better mechanisms to solve for that. 
um, there is a lot of upside. Um, we have 80% um, of the population that's below 35. And so we have to be thinking about how we can create the right tools to ensure that that population becomes a positive effect to the economy or, or the generations to come as opposed to a negative effect. And so that's, that, 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 that's how I think about it. But I think these problems exist um, in other parts of the world. We just have to, as a country, tell better stories about, about what's going on in our country and inspire and spur more people to actually contributing more to, to the growth story of, of, of the country. Right. And, and Fint is helping to act as almost a facilitator to tr drive Ex that purpose and mission. Exactly. At a really small scale right now, but hopefully there are more of us. Uh, and at scale, I, I think, um, we, I believe we, we'd be able to change the narrative um, of not only the country, but the continent as well. Yeah, that's great. And is there a lot of, I guess, is there like a spirit of kind of positivity and hopefulness among the population in Nigeria that you can kind of propel momentum towards more economic growth and prosperity? Uh, yes. And, you know, the, the reason is also quite simple. And I think it's actually a theme that has existed amongst the, along the continent for, you know, so if you look back to Africa a hundred years ago, we have always been marred by uncertainty or by difficulty. That has been part of our DNA. So um, hope is hope is quite necessary to be able to survive. Um, positivity is quite necessary to be able to survive. That is why in an economy um, that is growing, um, even though it's not growing for everyone, you know, people are still there are still more entrepreneurs that are that that, that exist. People who are building side businesses. Um, to support themselves, um, the idea about collective participation to to solve issues around, um, at least for example, during this COVID time, there have been a lot of businesses and individuals who are looking to provide um, new and sustained ways to provide better food, provide food, um, um, transportation, healthcare to those who need it the most at this time. So I am extremely positive that that people see a see light at the at the end of the, the tunnel. Um, and specifically because you know um, we've always we've always existed in uncertainty, and even in the existence of uncertainty, we have still grown. You know, um, and so that remains a hopeful story for people. Uh, yeah yeah that's uh that's great and talk to me about the extravagance of nigerian weddings <laughs> <laughs> wow that's that that's actually a very good question and i have a i have a story to tell you about that you know so my sister uh who's the first child in our family uh, got married in 2011 in, I believe it was September or August. 
And, you know, I'd actually, it was also the time I was just resuming at Delphi. So I'd actually gone to Delphi for a week and I had to come back to, to Lagos for, for uh, you have what is called a traditional wedding and a white wedding. Okay. Yeah. And I remember um, the traditional wedding, the, 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 the traditional, the traditional wedding was, was I had organized myself and my friends, but unfortunately I wasn't my family at the time. I and my friends had, you know, I tried to organize them at a particular place so that we could all go together. And unfortunately I didn't get in, in into that wedding. So at least a thousand people there and the security was, was crazy. So I wow. wasn't able to get in. So I, I heard it was a really good time. So I ensured that at the white wedding that I was, I was going to stand beside my mother so that um, no one could tell me I couldn't get in. Right. Um, but weddings, you know, I think Nigerians generally love a good party. Um, mm -hmm. If things are good, we want to drink and celebrate. If things are bad, we also want to drink and celebrate. <laughs> and if nothing is happening, we also want to drink and celebrate. <laughs> so it is, weddings are just an extension of that core expression as well. Um, and so what you will see in weddings um, carry over to birthday parties to funerals, to, um, to anniversaries. Uh, and so it's just an ever-growing theme. Um, why is that? I think, you know, it is poor thinking around a celebration is, is um, and why it seems so much more important to us is, you know, with all the stress and difficulties we face, um, every day, um, at least this calls for celebration. And if we're going to celebrate, we're going to celebrate like it's our last celebration. And so I, mm -hmm. I think, I, I think that's the, that's the idea behind it. Yeah. But maybe I would invite you down to a Nigerian wedding so you can experience it. It's, <laughs> it's a, it's amazing. That I would, I would, <laughs> I would love that. Um, how did, how did you, how did you know about this? The Nigerian wedding thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was doing some research for the uh, for the interview, I was just curious about. F fantastic! Did you watch any of the? Did you watch any of the weddings? No, I didn't. Should I? On yeah, YouTube you should. or something. Yeah, you should just type in, type in this. Actually, there was a really good wedding I went to. Um, there's one called. Just go. Uh, I'll send it. It's called Aliko Dangote wedding. His daughter got married. Um, I don't know if you know who he is. He's like the richest man in Africa. Oh wow! Okay. He he. They had to build a whole tent for for for, for the wedding because there's no space big enough to take the amount of people he he'd invited, and literally every African musician was there. Wow. Everyone was there, and it was a whole. It was a three day. No, it was a four day. It was a four day event because you know one day wasn't enough to 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 um to to have the wedding so yeah I, you should you should go and check it out it's quite, it's quite fascinating it's a qu quite an interesting quite an interesting wedding yeah that is that's that's interesting um there's almost a like a, a beauty to to that kind of really taking your celebration seriously in the in the face of kind of all this uncertainty exactly exactly and we know if if for anything we know how to throw a good party uh-huh <laughs> yeah <laughs> and 
And on that theme, what are some things that people absolutely must do or see when they visit Nigeria? In Nigeria, I think it's a number of things. The first thing is that um, you must go to a wedding or some kind of a celebration, um, whether it's a club or a birthday party or an anniversary or Thanksgiving, something. The second thing is to go to our beaches. Um, so we have some really nice beaches in the south, um, specifically in Lagos. Uh, there are a few of them. One is called um, Ilashe. Um, so the beaches are good. There's a national park in the north called Yankari as well, uh, which is which is quite 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 an interesting place to go to. Um, and also, you have to try our food. Nigeria has unarguably the best jollof rice, even though on Twitter, um, Ghanaians and Senegalese might, might fight me on that. Right. <laughs> um, and yes. Interesting. I'll have, to, those... I'll have to add Nigeria to my travel list, Hello? it sounds like. No, you... You have to, and you should probably come during December. December is okay. probably the best time to come to Nigeria. Okay. Why? Why is that? Um, because it's Christmas time. Um, even though we're not a what's the word? We're not a. I don't think we have a main religion because we're divided between Christianity, Islam, and um, traditional worship. But um, it's a really good time because everyone is in the it is in the spirit of 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 celebration, and like I told you, Nigerians love to celebrate, uh, and so so that would always be a good time to come. Interesting. Okay, I'll add it. I'm adding it to the list. <laughs> please, please do, please do. After this pandemic, yeah, of course, yes. What does your daily routine look like these days? Post during COVID or pre COVID? Uh, pre. Okay. Um, so typically I start my day around 5 30 to 6. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I'm typically playing tennis from 6 to about 7 30 in the morning. Okay. Tuesdays, Thursdays, Sundays, um, I typically go to the gym. Um, after that, because I'm a, I'm quite a midnight to morning person. I like to do most of my thinking during the day. So uh, anything before twelve, I would have um, time to speak to my team, um, do any level of deep thinking I need to do. So that happens till twelve, and anything from one o'clock to 9 or 10 p.m., um, I'm in meetings. Um, specifically, what I do in the business is, is uh, partnerships with businesses and raising financing from institutions and high net of individuals. So I'm typically in an office somewhere or a lunch or drinks. Um, so... After 12 during the day, 
Um, I'm typically out uh, maybe like nine or 10 or 11. Um, I, I guess the, what is quite interesting about work here is, especially if, if, if you're doing like strategy or business development is you can be working till one, 2 a.m. in the morning. Um, it's possible that, you know, you want to meet someone and during the day you haven't had the opportunity to meet them. And mm -hmm. they tell you to come, come, come have a meeting at 11, 11 p.m. or 12, 12, 12 in the morning. Huh. You know, so, so that, <laughs> that's, yeah. And that's actually quite typical. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so before 12, mostly I can control. Anything after 12, I can't control because they're all decided by meetings. Interesting. Okay. And bringing it back to the theme and name of the podcast, what's 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 your driving force? Kind of what's what's kept you driven as an entrepreneur and founder of uh, of Fint? Yeah, so it's a really good question. You know, um, I think you know I've always been fascinated about solving issues that are much bigger than myself. Um, this idea that you and a few people with the right network of people around you um, and the ability to execute, you can solve big problems, has really been a theme that I think has been present present as we've decided to, to take on this challenge at FIT. And so when I think about why we do this, in our discussion today, you know, I mentioned to you that you know, where I stay in it, where, where, where I used to live in Ikoi was probably one of the nicer areas to be in, in, in Nigeria. And, you know, I could see when I went to my country club to play tennis, you know, people who did not come from the same living standards or situations I luckily had. And so that dichotomy that, you know, birth can actually change your trajectory um, always stuck with me. And so our platform is actually quite a reflection, quite, actually quite reflects that. This idea that there are people that have and people that do not have. And the people that have can help the people that don't have and also make some economical gain as well. And so, and so, that keeps me up at night, you mm -hmm. know, thinking about the 25-year-old as well who wasn't afforded the opportunities I've been afforded. I, I've been nothing but lucky in my life. And so I have to ensure that, you know, for all the people who would not get born into the same circumstances, um, they would also have the opportunity to, to create a better life for themselves and to be able to to, to look at the end of the day and say, you know, um, I came up from this situation, but I started this situation, but, you know, because the right tools were put in place, I was able to change my story, change my trajectory and change my narrative and ultimately change the narrative of the people around me. And so that, that's, that, that's what drives, drives not only myself, my co-founders and the team around us every day. Mm -hmm trying to change the story and narratives of people who, who are the voiceless uh, um, to give them a better voice and a better living standard.
That's awesome. Yeah. And lastly, what advice would you like to leave um, some of the people listening who, you know, might have this idea of starting a business, but aren't sure when the right time is to begin working on it? I think it's first thing I'll do is I would recommend a book called actually two books. The first one is Peter Till's Zero to One. The second is Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules of Life. And really, you know, the the theme is quite central. Um, For as long as you believe in yourself and you're willing to work hard, you will execute. Um, The only thing that, that stands in the face of someone succeeding is that person themselves once you can remove yourself out of the equation hindering your success you will be successful yeah and i think that's that's a good place to end this um chiwete thanks again for coming on the show this was this was great i appreciate it man uh thanks for having me and really good job at what you're, you're doing i got the the opportunity this morning to listen to to the BJJ podcast with Kevin Landry. thought it was great. Oh, so, awesome. Thanks for having me. No, thanks I really, for having me as well. I really appreciate that. Where can people go if they want to learn more about Fint? Like website, social um, media, and so on? Yes, yeah, so our website is www.fint.ng and our social media handles on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook is Fint underscore NG. I hope I got that right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did. I, I think I did. But yeah, so that's that's where you can find us. Awesome. And you all can uh, visit my website, chaserosa.com, and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes and on my endurance training journey. Thanks, everyone who's listening, and see you next time. <laughs>